Tennessee's uninsured rate goes up, Nashville's incumbent mayor loses while early voting begins in Memphis, and the GOP primary for Tennessee's 2020 U.S. Senate election gets a little more crowded. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of September 16th. I'm Joel Ebert. I'm Natalie Allison. This week on the podcast, we have Brett Kelman. He's our healthcare reporter who had a story last week about recent data that the U.S. Census Bureau released about the number of uninsured people across the nation. Uh, And Tennessee had a fairly high increase in that number compared to other states. So, Brett, tell us a little bit about what the census released and what you've covered. Thanks, Natalie. So, Every year, the U.S. Census Census Bureau puts out a report about uninsured Americans. And this year, both nationally and locally, the news is all bad. Uh, For the first time since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, the number of Americans without health insurance went up. And then in Tennessee, we saw the third highest jump in the number of uninsured Tennesseans. The Census Bureau now estimates that about one in every 10 Tennesseans does not have health insurance. So with this new fact, what have you heard out of, you know, uh, the administration so far uh, as to, you know, some of the reasons behind uh, the increase? And what are you hearing out of people that aren't in the governor's administration? So there's basically two schools of thought as to why our uninsured numbers are going up. And one of them is very alarming and the other one's kind of rosy. Um, The governor and some of the state government staff argue that it is possible that Tennessee's economy is booming and therefore lifting families out of poverty, um, which means they no longer eligible for 10 care. And then instead of getting insurance from an employer, they are choosing not to have insurance and therefore our number of uninsured people is on the rise. Healthcare advocates and 10 cares credits make a very different argument. Um, For years, TenCare used a system to renew people's health insurance that was completely reliant on postal mail and paper forms. And internal data from the agency shows that that system just didn't reliably work very well. So it appears that a lot of people who are eligible for TenCare may have lost their insurance purely because paperwork didn't get done or was incomplete, and that It is likely that at least some, if not all of this rise, is attributable to low-income families who are eligible to 10 care but have lost it for the wrong reasons. So the the Census Bureau has released this data uh, highlighting, you know, somewhat of a problem here. Has the state said whether they're going to take any action to try to mitigate this this increase in the uninsured? Uh, Yeah. So I think there's two things in that regard. Um, The governor said he wants to know more about why this is happening, and some of those answers should come later this month when a more detailed state-by-state report comes out of the Census Bureau. But I think the governor's administration would also say that their ongoing effort to get a Medicaid block grant would allow them to decrease the uninsured rate by running 10K or more efficiently. It is a long, long path between now and then before that program, if it does work, would take effect. And to clarify, the block grant program that Brett is referring to is 
as of the day that this podcast releases Tuesday, the governor's office has announced the details of that, which includes essentially asking the federal government to share some of the savings that Tennessee has saved over recent years. So the the, the governor and, and the 10 care is saying that uh, the state has saved the federal government about $2 billion each year by, by operating more efficiently, by coming in below CMS projections of how much Tennessee will spend, that the, the state is asking that the govern that the federal government share half of that savings back with the state. So currently they're saying Tennessee is not rewarded for operating more efficiently. The federal government pockets all of that money um, under this, this block grant proposal the state is also asking that the federal government share in some of those savings, which uh, the governor says could potentially uh, be used to expand services and or expand the population of those covered under 10 care. Their emphasis has been on expanding services, uh, providing more, they call health versus healthcare based services. So focusing on wellness and whatnot, they, they have said, yeah, there's a possibility down the road that we could maybe cover people who are currently uninsured, but that hasn't been the focus of what they have described as the possible benefits of, of these savings. So as Brett said, it, it would be a while before we could ever see, uh, I think, uh, an, a decrease in the number of uninsured as a result of the block grant. So I think, Natalie, you kind of just actually inadvertently hit on a really critical point about the block grant. Oh, what's that? It is almost impossible to talk about the block grant without saying the words if, potentially, or possibly about six or seven times per sentence. As this is proposed right now, uh, the governor's office needs to pitch a plan. The public needs to provide comment on that plan. They need to negotiate that plan with the feds. It needs to be approved by the legislature. They need to enact that plan. If that plan then actually allows them to run 10 care more efficiently, then they would save money. If the federal government lets them have that money, then they might spend it in ways that might improve the uninsured rate. Yeah, and, and the governor's office has been very open about that. The governor himself is saying, we don't know that, that CMS is actually going to buy this deal, at least you know as it's initially being proposed, that they're obviously aware that they're going to have to negotiate back and forth. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's a big if, and seems like they're shooting for the moon and probably won't get that. Of course, as all of this is going on, there have been concerns from outside, right? Folks that haven't been a part of the conversation who have said, you know what, this is really kind of opening up the block grant ideas, opening up uh, a lot of uncertainty that some folks have uh, had otherwise while the state receives that money. Can you just give a quick summation of what are some of those concerns? Sure. So I think the concerns about the block grant uh, basically come in two forms. Um, at its core, at its core concept, a block grant changes the way that Tennessee gets money for TenCare, and gives Tennessee more authority over to how to spend that money. The primary concern is that a block grant would cap the funding that Tennessee gets, which means that money could potentially run out, especially in a scenario like an economic recession, D natural disaster, a, a disease epidemic, yeah. when lots of people would join TenCare. Now, the governor's office has, in their proposal, put in some mechanisms to try to insulate from that, but it's still definitely a concern. The other concern is what Tennessee will do with the additional authority it has under a block grant. It could take this money that it saves and spend it to make health care better in Tennessee. It could also spend the money in a different way. And I think this concern ultimately boils down to how much people trust their government. Some people believe the government will make decisions that benefit them. 
Other people don't. And in a scenario where so much of this is intangible and theoretical, I think it comes down to trust. And as, of course, we have uh, noted throughout uh, the past few years of coverage on healthcare, we anticipate Democrats will use both these issues, the, the block grant issue, as well as the uninsured rate, as another reason to just tout tomorrow you should, uh, the, the, the state should expand uh, under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, sure. I- expanding Medicaid is always an underlying theme in every healthcare discussion in Tennessee. And Without a doubt, expanding Medicaid would lower the uninsured rate. Um, It might cost the state some money to do that, but it would lower the uninsured rate. The block grant is often proposed as an alternative to expanding Medicaid, but some of the criticism I've heard from people who are concerned about the block grant is that even on its best day, even if it works as flawlessly as the governor's office hope it works, It won't accomplish reaching the same amount of uninsured people as expanding Medicaid would almost immediately. And I think at this point, a majority of U.S. states have expanded Medicaid, so that path is well-tread. We would be the first state to get a Medicaid block grant, which means we are pioneering a new trail through the wilderness. And I think there is concern that we are taking a harder path to reach maybe the same place. Yeah, and the governor's office has has been very open, acknowledging that no, what we're proposing is not going to you know overnight cover three hundred thousand more people as Medicaid expansion was. Their argument is that this is financially less risky. Um, you know, you can go back and forth about whether Tennessee would have to pay anything extra with Medicaid expansion. Um, you know, the the hospitals in Tennessee several years ago all agreed that they would cover the, the state's share of expansion. Whether they would do that today is unknown, but the governor's office still says that Medicaid expansion would require either the state or, you know, hospitals or whoever to take on more of a cost, whereas Block Grant, they're saying any expansion in services would just come from the savings alone. Right. The, the governor's office's argument is the Block Grant plan, as proposed, won't cost the state more money if it is negotiated with the feds exactly the way the state wants it to be. Yet another big if in a block grant conversation. You can continue to find Natalie and Brett's coverage on healthcare on the Tennessean and all of the USA Today uh, Network Tennessee properties, websites, or in the papers. Brett, thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. Former U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Bill Haggerty, got in the U.S. Senate race to succeed Lamar Alexander. Haggerty, who has never run for public office before, is relying on an endorsement from President Donald Trump, as well as taking pages out of Marsha Blackburn, the U.S. Senate candidate in 2018's playbook, by criticizing the left and touting his support for the president. The following are excerpts of an interview I did with Haggerty the day he announced his campaign. I'm coming back at a time of great concern, Joel. I think just like most Tennesseans, I'm very pleased with what President Trump has done to liberate our economy from the slow growth era of the Obama years. You know, we've got our economy growing. We've got investments increasing. Wages are up. Business confidence is high. You know, I think our conservative principles are working. But what I've seen coming out of Washington is a great threat to our economy, but more important, it's a threat to our conservative Tennessee values. When I asked Haggerty to elaborate, he said, it's, uh, it's, it's this liberal socialist agenda that's being pushed by Democrats like the squad 
in Washington. They want to take our cars. They want to limit what we can eat. They even want to take meat off the table. They want to confiscate more and more of our earnings with higher taxes to pay for more government programs. They want to put illegal immigrants at the head of the line. They want to take our private insurance. It's all of this stuff that's coming from these grandiose policy proposals that will be impossible to pay for and I think will be devastating to our economy. And more important, I think they'd be devastating to our our conservative way of life. I asked the ambassador how a Republican president and U.S. Senate can be hindered by Democratic policies coming out of one chamber. This is what he said. I think that's exactly why President Trump endorsed me as the best candidate to join him and fight for conservative Tennessee values in the U.S. Senate. He needs somebody that's going to stand with him and promote our conservative agenda. And having a candidate like me that he knows and he can trust and he has confidence in is exactly the reason that uh, he's endorsed me. And I think my job right now is to come back and earn the confidence and the trust of the people of Tennessee so that they're certain as well that I'm going to fight wholeheartedly for them and take this fight to the U.S. Senate to make certain that we stand the line and that we hold our conservative values in place. Haggerty's campaign will be run by Ward Baker, a Republican strategist with ties to Tennessee and national politics. The initial rhetoric coming out of Haggerty's campaign is similar to what was seen in the 2018 race between Marsha Blackburn and former Governor Phil Bredesen. Blackburn's campaign was run by Baker. Yeah, I think immigration and border security are going to be front and center for me. Um, It's something that has to be addressed. The situation in Washington is such that it's become toxic. But the the, the current circumstance at our border and the proposals to put illegal immigrants at the head of the line in front of Americans, in front of Tennesseans, in front of our veterans, makes no sense whatsoever. So I fully intend to support the president on securing our border, on building the wall, and on doing everything necessary to support our ICE agents and our, uh, and our professionals that are down there trying their best to do their jobs in spite of cities undertaking you know, these sanctuary city programs and and promoting lawlessness at a time when we need to have more security, not less. When asked if he had any concerns about local ICE raids, Haggerty said, I think what we have to do is support our law enforcement officers to the fullest extent. That's true in Nashville. It's true in every city around the United States. And when I see our leaders promoting lawlessness, I think it creates an environment that's toxic for our law enforcement officials. It makes their job more dangerous, and I think it increases the opportunity to have um, you know bad occurrences happen. President Trump has been very clear about this, and he needs somebody that will support him in this endeavor, and I am uh, 100% behind President Trump in this effort. The ambassador also talked about the need for constitutional judges, an issue Marsha Blackburn pressed during the 2018 election. Haggerty's entrance into the race makes him the second top-tier Republican to vie for the seat long held by U.S. Senator Lamar Alexander. Manny Sethi, an orthopedic trauma surgeon, got in the race earlier in the year, and the two will square off in a primary election next year. Performance means more than anyone's promises. Progress with Metro is the mark of the man. Performance means more than anyone's promises. Get more than promises. Riley's our man. Mayor Riley for mayor. He makes Metro work. 
that song was a 1970s tune from the campaign of Beverly Briley, the mayor of Nashville at the time. Uh, of course, this past week, Nashville Mayor uh, David Briley lost in a resounding defeat to uh, Councilman John Cooper. Uh, he was buoyed in his election effort by uh, many issues and, and a lot of state Republicans who were backing him. Um, Natalie, there were it seemingly a, a handful of lawmakers who were celebrating the uh, the Cooper win. Yeah, well, as um, Stephen Elliott, our uh, colleague over at the Nashville Scene and Nashville Post, reported last week on Twitter, uh, Representative Andy Holt, I think, actually stood around waiting uh, to get a photo with John Cooper at the state fair. Uh, the other week, following the ham breakfast, and and we saw we saw plenty of other Republicans at the state level, both uh, lawmakers and operatives, um, campaigning for John Cooper essentially on Twitter. People who don't even live in Nashville. Uh, then we saw the state party uh, taking out ads against David Briley. Um, you know, at one point comparing him to AOC and, and the squad of, of female Democratic lawmakers um, in Congress and also uh, highlighting his stance on immigration issues. So this was a, a national mayoral election that uh, we we certainly saw state Republicans weigh into uh, in a way that I don't think a lot of people were expecting. And even groups such as the Beacon Center were weighing in. So it'll be interesting to see how the relationship between Nashville and uh, state officials plays out in the future. Of course, there's been uh, several moments of contention and issues that have uh, been sort of undermined by the state legislature that came from Nashville. Uh, turning to the western part of the state, uh, here's a conversation about the up upcoming uh, vote in Memphis related to the mayor's race. Joining us today from yeah. Memphis is Sam Hardiman in the Commercial Appeal. He is their city hall and politics reporter. He's going to uh, give us a brief overview of the ongoing mayoral race there. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thank you for having me, Joel. I appreciate it. Uh, so in Memphis uh, today, Friday, uh, September 13th, uh, early voting started for the Memphis municipal elections. And the, uh, the main um, race on the ballot is obviously for Memphis mayor, and uh, it has three principal um, candidates really squaring off. There are technically 11 people on the ballot, but there are three candidates who have dominated the conversation throughout the summer. Uh, those candidates are uh, Shelby County Commissioner Tammy Sawyer, who uh, rose to prominence as a local activist with Take Them Down 901, which opposed the continued presence of Confederate statues in Memphis. There is the incumbent Memphis Mayor Jim Strickland, who is uh, seeking a second term. He was elected in uh, 2015 on seating then incumbent A.C. Wharton. And then uh, there's former Memphis Mayor Willie Harrington, who has the distinction of being the first uh, black superintendent of Memphis City Schools and the first elected black mayor in a majority black city of Memphis. He took office in 1992 and resigned 17 years later in 2009 and has been largely, despite a uh, one run for Congress since then, out of public life. Hmm. So obviously, uh, it sounds like a strong field of candidates. As they are looking to convince voters to vote for them, what have been some of the issues that those three candidates have been highlighting? So they have really taken different approaches to um, the mood of the city and the race itself. Tammy Sawyer has largely cast this race as... Um, a referendum on the status quo, and she believes that the status quo needs to change. 
She is. She believes that she is the change that could help overturn some of the systemic inequities that you see in Memphis, the lingering poverty, the poverty that really breaks down along racial lines to a certain extent. And uh, she is her campaign slogan, for example, is we can't wait. She believes that right now is an urgent time for Memphis and voters need to enact change. The incumbent, Jim Strickland, has really had a message of steady progress. He likes to point out the increases to certain aspects of city services that have happened under his watch. He will talk about the paving budget. He will talk about how many more people are in the youth summer jobs program. He will talk about increases in minority contracting with the city. He will talk about the number of people that are employed um, in Memphis, in the Memphis metro area. And so that's he really is casting the race, and he has focused on a message of public safety, which is what he campaigned on in 2015 when he was elected the first time. He's you know very adamant that Memphis needs more police officers, and that will bring down the violent crime rate that seems to define the city to the outside world. Um, former Mayor Willie Harrington has um, campaigned in the unusual way that he campaigns. In the sense that he's not much of a door knocker, he goes to some traditional campaign events, but really he holds large rallies. And he relies on this cult of personality that he accumulated over two decades in the mayor's office. He's, you know, still a beloved figure in the city. Um, He is targeting specific areas of the city, Whitehaven, Frazier, which are um, predominantly black areas in the north and south of the city, as well as other places. Um, where he will rely on that for voter turnout. Those and so he has, he has cast, he, he, in terms of issues of this for the race, Harrington has said that the city is declining, that the current mayor is weak on crime, and has voiced support for at least examining getting a new police director. But beyond that, he has not really offered or pitched anything besides his personal charisma. Those sound like very different approaches. You kind of have the old guard, current guard, and then what hopes to be a future, uh, you know, um, office holder and, and Tammy Sawyer, I guess, or she currently is, but uh, in that capacity uh, as the mayor. Um, but as you are looking at this, um, has there been any polling out there from any of the candidates? Have, has there been outside firms looking at this? We, we have not polled here at the Commercial Appeal. Um, the only polling that's been done is uh, by the Strickland campaign, and uh, they believe that they're ahead. Um, the other two candidates really, I don't think, uh, uh, have used polling in particular. Um, I don't think Harrington has traditionally done so, and I'm not aware of a poll that Sawyer has put in the field. Neither of uh, neither Harrington or, or Sawyer is, has run a television ad to this point. Wow. That's um, interesting. Stri- Stri- well, one of the interesting things about this race, when we talk about the status quo, is Jim Strickland has largely has outraised everyone on the ballot combined to this point. Um, all eleven candidates, not just Sawyer and, and Harrington. He had um, at the end of June about nine hundred thousand dollars cash on hand. He has attacked on television, you know, three different broadcast ads several different radio ads, a heavy digital spend. He is really the only candidate that can afford to heavily get their message out there through paid media. Uh, Early voting, I think, goes until September 18th. Is that right? Uh, It goes to September 28th. Oh, I'm sorry. I got that uh, wrong. (laughs) That's why you're the reporter. It goes to September 28th. (laughs) No, it's okay. And uh, 
that's typically where um, traditionally about 50% to 60% of the vote will happen over these next several days. And uh, it's pretty much a steady trickle of, you know, three to 4,000 people a day. Uh, the last mayoral election only saw 100,000 votes in a um, city that has 330,000 registered voters. And, so, and as traditionally and, low turnout. And so is uh, election day what day again? It is Thursday, October 3rd. And then uh, if it, it, that the race there is not the same as in Nashville, I believe, where we had a runoff if if somebody didn't hit a 50 percent threshold, uh, you guys have will have a conclusion in October. Is that right? Right. Okay. Right. There is no mayoral runoff okay. anymore. There was up until 1991. OK. Well, uh, that's all I've got for now. But uh, as uh, anybody that's interested in listening, you can check out Sam's coverage on the Commercial Appeals website and in the newspaper. Uh, Thanks again for joining us, Sam. Thanks for having me again, Joel. Last week, U.S. District Judge Aleda Trauger said Tennessee's recently implemented voter registration law could not actually be implemented, calling it a, quote, punitive regulatory scheme while uh, denying the state's motion to dismiss two lawsuits over the law. House Speaker Pro Tem Bill Dunn has announced that he is not going to seek re-election in 2020. He is one of the oldest members in the House, or longest-serving members, I should say, in the House, um, having served for nearly 26 years since 1994. Um, He was considered to be in the running for a House Speaker after Glenn Cassida uh, announced he would be resigning, uh, but ultimately did not get in the race. Bill Dunn, for years, was also known as one of the uh, most significant proponents of school voucher legislation, which the House and Senate finally passed this year. Tennessee's refugee resettlement lawsuit is not done yet. The plaintiffs for the case decided to ask the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals for what is called an en banc case to be heard. Essentially, that means the entire 16-member appeals court would hear the case in order to essentially allow the case to once again uh, be relitigated. Representative Rick Tillis has announced that he is resigning from House Republican Caucus leadership, where he has served as whip. Uh, that came after what we understand to be a vote by the caucus of, of no confidence in Tillis's leadership after both Representative Andy Holt and House Majority Leader William Lambert said that uh, Representative Tillis admitted to them that he had limited involvement in an anonymous t- a Twitter account, CHB Mole, uh, which disparaged some House Republican members. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. As always, you can find us on Tuesdays. We will be back at our usual time next week. Uh, You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, including on iTunes or Spreaker. Uh, As always, please continue to rate us. Uh, It really helps with our uh, popularity contest here inside the Tennessee. Also, the podcast is produced by uh, John Garcia and Erica Whitney. Uh, Thanks again for listening. I'm Joel Lieber. And I'm Natalie Allison. See you next week.